where we are created. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, we ask that your word would go forth from this place. Father, we pray that our hearts would be ignited with the fire of the gospel and the truth of your word and that we would be reminded of our depravity and sin so that we could rest in the grace of God. And Father, we would be people that are doing the work of the ministry, not because we have to, but because we want to. Father, change our hearts desire for you. Help us to remember your miraculous and your gracious salvation through Christ. Lord, we thank you that you are a gracious and merciful God, that you took us out of the pit and set us upon the rock, which is Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I was playing a board game. My wife loves to play board games, and I was playing a board game the other day. It was called Code Names, and in this game, you try to find words that match up. There's a, a, a words all over the table, and you're trying to match these words together, and so you have to have one word that describes two or more words so that your team would guess the right word, okay? So it's it's, it's kind of like an old, um, so, so anyway, so the two words that I was, or the two cards that I was trying to get my group to guess was kangaroo and crane. Those two go together perfectly. There may be some wordsmiths in here that go, oh yeah, I know the exact word that our people can make sure you pick those two words, but kangaroo and crane. And I had to choose one word to describe both of those words. And so, of course, I chose mammal to describe kangaroo and crane. And in that moment, in that moment, I was thinking to myself, well, they're both animals. They're probably both mammals. I thought that mammals had fur and feathers or feathers, right? And if, if, you're, if you're aware, that, that's not true, okay? But we started talking about it. Is a mammal a bird? Is it not? And so all the millennials in the room immediately went to the study, and they got their encyclopedia off the shelf, and they began filtering through that. No, they, they Googled it, okay? So... Um, there was multiple people in the room. It wasn't just me that didn't know this answer immediately, just to make sure you were aware. But I was talking to my daughter the next day, and she's in second grade. And I picked up one of her stuffed animals that was a bird, and just checking her skills in science, I asked her, is this a mammal? So my second grader said to me, no, silly daddy, it's not a mammal. Mammals have fur and not feathers, and they do not lay eggs. I said, I said where did you learn that? Because I definitely didn't teach you that, right? She said, Mrs. Burdick, my teacher taught us that. 
You've seen that show, Are You Smarter Than a Fifth Grader? I had forgotten my second grade science lesson, okay? Yet, my daughter, it was at the forefront of her mind. She had remembered who spoke it to her. She had remembered the exact definition of a mammal. And you see, when we read this passage, Paul doesn't want the church to forget the salvation in which God has given them. What God has saved them from and the great mercy and grace of God. You see, keeping this on the forefront of our mind brings a deep love for God. If we lose that love, we have for God. If we forget the great mercy and grace which God has miraculous saved us and what he has saved us from, then guess what? We're probably not going to glorify God with our life. In Revelation, the Lord addresses the church specifically in Ephesus, the same church in which Paul writes the letter and he He calls them out with the exact problem. They have great works. They have rid themselves of false teachers. And yet Christ says this in Revelation 2, 4, But I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from which... Where you have fallen, repent. Do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you. And remove your lampstand from his place unless you repent. They have lost their first love. They have not felt the grace and the mercy of their salvation in a long time. And their hearts were far from God. This passage this morning as we look at it together should help us to remember the great grace of God and draw us near to his love and in turn give us grace and love for one another. Remember in chapter 1, Paul was given God's plan for salvation. God had a plan from the foundation of the world that he chose you, that he was going to redeem you or buy you, that he was going to give you the Holy Spirit as a guarantee of the inheritance to the praise and glory of God. And then he prays that the church would have their eyes open. This is chapter 1. That they would have their eyes open to the wonders and the majesty of the great God who saves the hope of our salvation. How God values you. How great his power is. And then in chapter 2, just in case you didn't know how great of a salvation you have been given. He tells you exactly how bad it was. Verse 1, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince and power of the air, the spirit That is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, 
like the rest of mankind. This is our first point this morning. The church was dead and remembers their depravity. The church was dead. The people of God, whenever I refer to the church, I am talking about the household, the family of God, the people of God, not an organization, not a building, but the people, the people of God were dead in their transgressions and sins. And we must remember this. Paul is reminding us of this. The word dead shows us that sin is not so much an action, but it is our condition. It's not that we were half dead or somewhat alive or somewhat good. We were dead dead. Our sin is a symptom of our condition. You don't have the flu because you cough and sneeze and run a fever, but you cough and sneeze and run a fever because you have the flu. We're not sinners because we sin. No, we sin because we are sinners. We are dead. We were dead. This is illustrated in our sin nature. Guess what? I didn't have to send my children to sin camp to teach them how to act, right? I didn't have to teach them how to be selfish with their toys or tell daddy and mommy, I don't want to do that. It was inherent in their nature. If you have a two-year-old, you know what I'm talking about, right? The child is a sinner. It doesn't mean that they are incapable of good, It just means that they are incapable of not sinning. This is why no amount of religious behavioral change can fix us. It must be a new creation. It must be a regenerate spirit, a regenerate heart within us. You think of it this way. some of you uh, like leftovers, and, and, and we like leftovers at our house, but sometimes they get into the back of the refrigerator, and sometimes you have to go into the back, deep, dark crevices of the refrigerator, unknown to mankind, and you have to reach in there, and, and sometimes you find this Tupperware container, and it's got a piece of chicken in it. And who, who knows how long it's been there. It's dead. And when you open the Tupperware container up, you know it, right? They're trying to do some good things to cover up the problem that you're a sinner. is like taking that piece of chicken after waking up from being passed out from the smell and saying, you know what, all I need is some good, solid barbecue sauce and it's good to go. No religious behavioral change will ever change the heart. We may smell okay for a while. We may even cover up the stench through, through our culture or, or through our manners, but we are still dead. We were still dead. Romans 3.23 says this, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Sin is falling short of God's glory. And falling short of God's glory is sin. Not glorifying God is 
sin. Paul uses two words to describe the effects of our condition as a sinner. He uses the word trespasses, which means to slip, to fall, to stumble, to deviate, to go in the wrong direction. And he uses the word sin in the Greek, homratea, which is, means to miss the mark, like shooting at a target and missing the bullseye. You see, trespasses and sins are the result of our spiritual deadness. But he goes on. He doesn't stop there. He describes the depth of the problem. Verse 2, not only were you dead in trespasses and sins in what you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Not only were we spiritually dead, but guess what? We were followers of Satan. That's what the scripture tells us here, that we were actually following Satan himself, the power of the prince of the air. Isaiah 14 talks about the fall of Satan five times in the fall of Satan when he's declaring what he wants to do. Satan says in his heart, I will. I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will set, sit on the mount of the assembly. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most High. You see, the heart of Satan and followers of Satan, which in which we once were, is to elevate himself to a position that belongs only to God. In a position where they make themselves God. then this becomes the heart of all of mankind. This is why Jesus comes saying, repent or change your mind, for the kingdom of God is at hand. The I will mentality, the spirit of Satan, which is at work in the sons of disobedience, this is Satan's rebellion. And guess what? It's mimicked by man's rebellion which says, I do what I want, when I want, how I want, because I am the point. It's sin. And then he keeps going, pouring salt into this open wound. In verse 3, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. You see, the desires of our heart were to please our flesh rather than to obey the will of God. Our body, which tells us to have sex, to get angry, to smoke whatever, to look at whatever, we succumb or live in the passions of those desires. Because our flesh, it tells us, our body, our mind tells us that we need to feel it, taste it, smell it, experience it. No matter the consequence, no matter how it affects people around us, 
Our minds tell us, make your own decisions. Do it for the here and the now. You can see this in the culture in which we live. And the Bible calls it living in the passions of the flesh. And if this wasn't enough, Paul says you were children of wrath like the rest of mankind, destined for judgment. You may say, Rob, you know what? This this dead, followers of Satan, sons and daughters of disobedience, children of wrath, that's not me. I, I mean, I, I grew up in the church. I, I went to a Christian school. I, I'm a, a law-abiding citizen. I'm pretty, I'm pretty good. But just because you haven't experienced the full outward, outworking effects of your depravity does not mean that it is not present in you. Praise God that some of you are not as bad as you could be, but it doesn't mean the heart is still not wicked. It just means that sometimes your conditions haven't allowed you for you to be as bad as it could be. You probably heard the story of Lance Armstrong, the great cyclist who cheated using steroids. And who who would do that? I mean, who would cheat and lie so much for so long and turn his back on his his friends and, and, and be... So driven like that. I mean, you wouldn't do that, right? Then you look at the story and you look at at, at how each minor sin becomes one on top of the other. And then he begins this huge lie as it compounds. He had a drive to win, to do whatever it takes, right? We uh, We can see that. And then he lies because he has this huge drive to win. And then he lies again to cover up his lies. And then he threatens those who would expose him. And all of a sudden this snowball effect is out of control. He's under exorbitant amount of pressure. And the depravity of man, this downward spiral, is seen. But who am I? to say Lance Armstrong is depraved? Guess what? In ninth grade, by the grace of God, when I was cheating on a 10-point Spanish quiz, I got caught. Was my heart that much better than his? Just because it wasn't on a larger scale or didn't continue after that? But by the grace of God, there go I. Who's, who am I to say that if my environment wasn't different, I would have made different decisions for my life? Who am I? I heard an illustration about this on a mission trip to Rwanda in which a, a team went to, the, to Rwanda, Africa, and they drove to a Tutsi village in the mountains and a man, a Rwandan man, began to describe the unspeakable genocide in 1994 in this very village. And the horror he felt on that very day. And, and the team that went on this mission trip began to pray. And one of the team leaders prayed, God, forgive me. 
The wickedness that drove men to commit these crimes is the same sin in my heart. I am no better, no closer to salvation, but for your grace. One church member went on to say, I always thought I had a pretty boring testimony, but standing there listening to this prayer in this place and on this scene of the massacre, I realized I had been saved from the depths of depravity. God's grace is extravagant. For those who say, I have a a boring testimony, let me tell you, Ephesians 2 says otherwise. We must understand the gravity of the grace of God in our life and the depth of of our sin to understand the greatness of God's salvation. Christians sometimes want to talk about the gospel without talking about the problem of sin. And guess what? This can create apathetic Christians. Why? Because if we don't wrestle with the full extent of the problem, we can never really love the gospel or be fully committed to spreading it. Let's be honest, the gospel demands things that are inconvenient for us. It makes us do things in which are uncomfortable for us. It makes us do things with our money that we would never do. It makes us reach out to people that we would never talk to. And it makes us go to places that we would never go before. All for the mission of God. All because we understand the great salvation of God. All because we understand the depth of depravity and the grace that God bestowed us. We want to show that grace to other people. Spurgeon said this, the reason we think too lightly of a Savior is we think too lightly of sin. Only he who has stood before God feeling the rope of God's judgment about his neck will be the man to weep for joy when he is pardoned, to hate the evil which he has been forgiven. Louis Giglio said this, sin did knock me down to God's JV team or put me on probation to put me on a slower track to get me a mansion in heaven. Sin wiped us out. It killed us. J.D. Greer says it like this, I didn't need a Jesus who would come as a life coach who would help me turn over a new leaf. I needed a resurrected Savior who would give me a new life. If we stop this sermon right now without telling the full story of God, it misses the mark. It would be sin if we were just telling people about the, the condemnation and the judgment in which God gives and the wrath of God being poured out upon sinners. But the next two words in the, in the story here remind us in verse 4, it re- reminds us that we have hope. It reminds us that our God intervened in our place. This is what it says, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, 
even when we were dead and our trespasses made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. This is our second point this morning, but God made the church alive. We were dead, and God made the church alive. It's the love of God, the riches of his kindness and mercy, that leads us to repentance. This is why I always say, I am undeserving. I'm undeserving to be your pastor. I'm undeserving to be a father. I'm undeserving to have a beautiful, lovely, godly wife. I'm undeserving to be raised by godly parents. I'm undeserving to preach this sermon to you. But it's by the grace of God that I stand here with you. We are all undeserving of God's great salvation because it is by the grace we have been saved. And oh, what a glorious salvation it is. The King of kings, the Lord of lords came, he took on flesh, he dwelt among men, and he became a servant, but not just any servant, but a servant who would suffer and die in our place. That God would pour his wrath out on Jesus instead of us. so that we may be declared righteous and holy and we might be resurrected to be made alive with Christ. You see this picture all over, the scriptures all over, everything that we do in the church. The picture is in baptism. When you go under the water, it represents the death and you become alive with the resurrection of Christ. You're identifying with the gospel in your life. You are now a child of God. You are declared righteous and holy, not because of your works, but because of what Christ did on the cross and the power of the resurrection. We see this in the Old Testament, in the sacrifices that are being on the altar, in which they would put the, the, their hand on their head and saying that this is taking my place. You see it in Exodus where the Passover lamb's blood is on the doorpost and the angel of death goes by the doorpost. We were deserving of that death and yet Christ has given us life by his blood. We see it in the ark during the time in which the wrath of God came in the flood and was poured out for us. God chose a family and he put them in the ark, the safety net of God in which saved them from the wrath of God. It is we were dead and now we live because Christ lives and now he comes to live inside of us through the Holy Spirit. We have a heart that yearns and desires to fulfill the will of God instead of living for the passions of the flesh. Christ paid for all your sins on the cross, and now he gives you the ability to walk with God with a new heart, 
Does that mean that everything will be perfect? No, we long for the day for it to, to be perfect when we're glorified with him, when we are with Christ in heaven. But guess what? Even now he gives you a heart that loves your God and desires to do his will. Even we walk in this wicked earth. And so we are undeserving of his grace. This message transforms the hardest of hearts and brings hope to those who are against God. One day in, in, in the 18th century, a evangelist during the Great Awakening, his name was George Whitfield. He was preaching from John 3, talking about Nicodemus being born again. And a man with his pockets stuffed with rocks came with a purpose. And his purpose was to physically attack the famous evangelist once the sermon had ended. But after Whitfield's emotional, his powerful message of the gospel, the man came up to the preacher. He emptied his pockets of rocks and said, I came to hear you with my pocket full of stones to break your head. But your sermon got the better of me and broke my heart. There is power in the message of the gospel. God transforms a life of people by understanding their sin condition and the grace that God has given us that he makes us alive. Let's finish up here in verse 6. By grace you have been saved, in verse 6, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. I put this as the third point this morning because I think it sums up the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. God's grace is overwhelming. God's grace is overwhelming. If we don't understand, church, if we don't understand the depth of our depravity, what God has saved us from, how can you love your God? Not just a surface love, but a deep love. There's a story in Luke 7 where Jesus goes to the house of a Pharisee a teacher of the law, someone who's doing it right, religious man, and a lady of the night walks in, and she begins weeping at the feet of Jesus. And she begins wiping his feet with her hair even pouring out some perfume that she bought with her own money on the feet of Jesus. And the Pharisees began looking at one another. 
And they began saying, I I thought Jesus was supposed to be a prophet. I thought he was supposed to be righteous. Isn't he supposed to hang out with righteous people? And I'm going to read here from Luke 7, beginning in verse 39. It says this, Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, He would have known who and what sort of woman this is, who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. And he gives this parable. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed him 500 denarii, which is about a year and a half worth of salary, worth of wages. So put your year and a half worth of wages, and that's what you owe this money lender. And the other, 50, which is about 10 days' salary, a little over a week's worth of salary. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both, the moneylender. Now which one of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I supposed, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. The thought process is, we don't have to have the world's worst testimony to love our God. We don't have to have all the effects of our depravity throughout our life and our circumstances To love our God, but we must understand the depth of his salvation and the depth of his grace and the depth of our sin to love our God deeply. Look at your life. Does it reflect a heart of thanksgiving? Do you enjoy giving of yourself for the advancement of the kingdom of God? You see, dead people don't respond to love. They really don't respond to anything. Alive people respond to love with love. May we as the church respond to the grace of God in our life 
with repentance and faith in Christ alone. May we see the grace of God and want to share that grace with others in our world who walk as zombies, dead people walking around without hope, without life. May we see the urgency in that. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your great grace, your great mercy, which with you have saved us. Father, we know that we are undeserving of your love, and yet you have lavished your love upon us in ways in which we cannot understand. Father, help us to see the wickedness of our hearts, what we were like before we met Christ, encountered the living God, and our hearts were transformed. Father, we know that there are sometimes darkness in our hearts. And Father, we know that you need to shine light in that darkness. And Father, we pray that our ears would be open to hear the word of God, the transformational work of God in salvation. That it's not us doing the work, but it's God's salvation and help us to rest in that. Help us to rest in the grace in which God has saved us. Help us to love our God. Just as the woman felt the deep conviction of sin, Father, we pray that we would feel the deep conviction of sin so that we would know the hope that you have given to us this great salvation in which we celebrate because we know what we're saved from. Father, we do not stay in our sin. We do not stay as people. It's not on the forefront of our mind of our sin in the past. The great accuser wants us to remember how bad we were But we look to the cross of Christ. We look and we see Christ, the righteousness of Christ. And when we see ourselves, we see people who have loved unconditionally, who have walked upon water, who have served because we see Christ as he took our place. Father, we know we are not good. And yet, our reliance and faith is in Christ alone. Father, there are people here who have never heard this message before. We ask that you would speak to their hearts, that they would they would come, that they would rest at the foot of Jesus, 
calling upon his name for salvation. We pray that they, that would happen this morning as we worship together.